Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com forward slash genre. Over 180,000 titles to choose from from your iPhone, Android, or Kindle. That's audibletrial.com forward slash G-E-N-R-E. Weirdo bookworms unite! We want to share our love of genre fiction with you. Fans of horror, sci-fi, fantasy, and more can stop by as we chat about what we've been reading. Hello and welcome to Genre Junkies. I'm your host, Sandra. And I'm your other host, Scott. And we have a very special guest. You've all been anxiously awaiting her return. It is Amanda. Hi, everybody. She's back. So tonight we're going to talk about the third book in the four book series, plus novella, Two Dark Rains by Kendar Blake. We are very excited. And of course, Amanda was here when we talked about the first two books in the series. So she had to come back for the newest book. I mean, obviously. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk about it. And your fans will be so happy you're here. <laughs> all of them. All, all, all two of them. I'm sorry, that's mean. (laughs) (laughs) No, but seriously, thanks, Mom and Dad. (laughs) (laughs) So in case you guys hadn't picked up on this fact, this is a book where there are other books in this series that have already come out. So if you have any interest in this series, you can't really listen to this episode if you haven't read the other books. Wouldn't make sense to you. And it's a wonderful, dark fantasy series. So you need to read these books. Like, what are you doing? You're wasting your life if you're not reading these books. That having been said, we're still going to keep this spoiler free for this new book until the break. Does that make sense? It makes sense to me. I hope it makes sense to all of you. (laughs) Um, So real quick, I always love to ask this. Um, Has anybody been enjoying any new genre books or movies or TV shows in between our recordings? Well, I don't know if it, I'm not sure if it actually counts as a genre thing, and I know I'm really late to the game, but I just recently watched the first season of HBO's True Detective, Oh, which I guess can be kind of a thriller. Horror? Uh, yeah. I mean, there's definitely some bits in there. I mean, anybody who's a horror fan is really not going to think it's horror, <laughs> but uh, there's, you know, there's elements in there that are very skin prickly. Um, I just want to give a shout out to whoever wrote that, whoever <laughs> the cinematographers were, the acting, the writing, every bit of it was so spot on and intentional. I really enjoyed it and I really recommend it. Ooh, okay. That's good to keep in mind. Um, Right now I'm reading Little Heaven by Nick Cutter, which is an absolutely fantastic horror book. And I'm not going to talk about it too much because I'm hoping to do a future episode on it for just a regular genre junkies episode. But it's Nick Cutter and this is just further cementing my love of him and his works. Well, this isn't exactly genre, but since our very first episode was was prepper porn i'll say that i uh i've recently been introduced to joe robinette on youtube and his videos about bushcraft and and living out in the sticks makes me really want to read the rest of the china pandemic series so i'm about to get back into that and you kind of said you would read those books and maybe like talk about them a little bit or do a mini episode i'm not sure so yeah for the other prepper porn uh fans out there i think you owe it to them well, I mean, it's only been a year. I know it doesn't feel. I feel I know it feels like it's been a lot longer than that, but it's only been a year since we since I read that first book. All right. Well, stay tuned everybody. You might get more prepper porn coming your way. Um, now to the matter at hand. Two Dark Reigns by Kendar Blake. Queen Catherine has waited her entire life to wear the crown, but now that she finally has it, the murmurs of dissent grow louder by the day. There's also the alarming issue of whether or not her sisters are actually dead or if they're waiting in the wings to usurp the throne. Mirabella and Arsinoe are alive, but in hiding on the mainland and dealing with a nightmare of their own, being visited repeatedly by a specter they think might be the fabled Blue Queen. Though she says nothing, her rotting bony finger pointing out to the sea is clear enough. Return to Fenburn. Jules, too, is in a strange place, in disguise. And her only confidants, a war-gifted girl named Amelia and her oracle friend Mathilde, are urging her to take on a role she can't imagine filling, a legion-cursed queen who will lead a rebel army to Katarin's doorstep. This is an uprising that the mysterious Blue Queen may have more to do with than anyone could have guessed or expected. 
Ooh. Ooh. My for myself, I thought that Jules would have a large part of the new series, but that synopsis at least really does um bring home the fact that Jules might be pretty important to what's happening next. Yeah, Jules is super important and she gets a lot of airtime, page time, I don't know, in this book. She, there's a lot of Jules. If you're a Jules fan, you are so in luck. And I happen to be a Jules fan. Yeah, we get a lot of her perspective for sure. Um it harkens back to kind of the end of the second book. A lot of what happens is sort of foreshadowed at the very end there. Uh when uh Arsinoe and Mirabella are escaping the island. If you remember there's a part where uh the, they're you know Mirabella's battling the storm of the mist and the mm-hmm. goddess and once Jules uh, decides to go back to the island and knock all the way to the mainland there's a line in there something like that the storm quiets a little as if it was Jules that the island was trying to keep all along yes and I kept thinking about that through this book yeah no it really was like um her role was not just as um, Arsinoe's kind of protector and friend, like the goddess has like big plans for, for our girl. So before we go into our experiences with this, I want to play a little game with you. I want you. to play a game. So I want everybody to give their experience score with this third book. But before you do, I want to know what you think you gave the last two books on our last episode. I think I gave it Page Turner. I'm pretty sure I gave it Page Turner too because I was holding out against my future self. Yes. <laughs> I, yeah, I was doing the same where it I just, was like, maybe I shouldn't, I should hold back a little. Right. I just, I didn't want to fall into obsession uh, before yeah. I really knew what I was getting myself into. Which I am now. Yeah. yeah. Okay. You are both absolutely correct. Yes. You both gave high it a Page Turner score. High I, however, gave it an obsession score for the first two books. So what do you think about the third book now? You, Amanda, you've protected yourself from your future <laughs> self in the past. That's a well, very confusing, actually. It's very It's very um inception. I, I do it a lot, actually. I'm very concerned about time travel. <laughs> well, I'll say I I'm 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 pretty much solidly in the realm of obsession at this point like the second any new publish uh, any new publication in the series comes out i just eat it up with a spoon you know the novellas everything i mean i've I've gone back and read the first two books it's i'm 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 way in it i'm in it to win it um yeah i mean i'm i'm really obsessed with these books probably unhealthily so and that's fine i'm totally fine with that and this is some of the dark fantasy stuff of my dreams this is exactly what i wanted this third book to be and especially after i read the bind up the queens of fenburn which contains the two novellas because i have all of these in hard copy and i loved it i love it so much and this book yeah i'm obsessed i'm trash i am trash for this series. I am just a big piece of poisoner trash. So my experience with this book in particular, I, I am obsessed with the series, but I'm actually calling it a page turner. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm not saying that it's a step down at all. It's it's just this time, this book just, it really kept me involved, but it didn't keep me up. That's all. Okay, that's fair. And you know, um, this book's been out now, so um, everybody's enjoyed it, like Amanda's enjoyed it. Scott and I were actually treated to an arc of this book, which was an incredible honor. Um, and of course, we got to interview the author as well, which I'm sure you've all listened to that amazing, fun interview. Yeah, Kendara was just so gracious to join us. I, I can't talk about that anymore because it's just been on my mind for, you know, ever since we recorded it. It's just been so exciting. Yeah, I'll, I'll spare you all my ugly cries into the microphone. <laughs> But yeah, for me, the reason why this one was more of a page turner, I think, is because this one goes back to a lot of world building and not in a bad way. Just there was a lot of rules that were that were created for the first two books. And this one really kind of starts from square one again, builds up on the characters that were generated in Three Dark Crowns and One Dark Throne, but it really does have to create a brand new scenario to get going. Right, yeah, because we're learning more about some parts of the world that we didn't know about. Like, we learn a lot about the mainland. We learn about uh, the war-gifted folk and the Oracle people, which it's like, 
what? Like, we haven't even gotten to meet these fools until now. That's true. And I think also one of the interesting things, of course, if you read the novellas, if you read the novellas in any series, uh, you know, fantasy series like this, it always gives you kind of more backstory and more information. Right. Like, it's not a deal breaker if you haven't read these, but it enriches it a lot. It really does. And um, uh, one of my favorite parts is actually the very beginning of this book, the prologue, that really goes back and recounts uh, a bit of history about the birth of a much, you know, a previous queen, I think 400 years before our present day set where all of our action is happening. And you add that with the novellas, which go back in time a bit, and you start to see all of these kind of holes in what everyone thinks is always been going on with the queens. It turns out that all of these rules that are so sacred and unbreakable that are always there, it, are they really true? Are, are things really the way that they've seemed to the population? Or has there been other forces at work all along? I think that is so true. And that's part of the really rich, um, almost high fantasy part of this is like there's all this stuff we get a little window into of things that have happened before, generations upon generations before. And yeah, it just makes the whole thing more succulent. It does. It Like you said, it enriches it. It just gives it a, a little bit more of a think. And I love that. <laughs> so kind of uh, let's talk briefly about writing style. I mean, I found Kendar's writing style to be um, consistent, which I really appreciate. I mean, you know, sometimes people slog and sometimes books in a series, especially a fantasy series, you can be like, this is a filler book. This is a throwaway. You know, a lot of this is, you know, kind of dead air space. And I was really worried about that going into this. And I was really happy with the outcome. Didn't feel like that. I mean, yeah, it feels like another book in a series building towards a dramatic conclusion, but it didn't feel wasted. It felt deliberate and it kept the plot going. And she still has her wonderful descriptions of food. <laughs> that is so true. I, I love it. it. It just never felt to me like she was marking time just trying to get to the next most exciting part of the story. Even even when there are parts of sort of, um, you know, not really apparent, really strong action. Something that I just love about her writing and, and probably about her and the way she approaches her work is that she knows these characters so well. And she's able to live in their skin um, so authentically when she's writing them that uh, moments never feel wasted because you always feel like you're in the room with them. And I super appreciate that. And it, it didn't come to my attention until after I'd already read the book that this really was written originally as a duology. Mm. Like the end of One Dark Throne was the end of the story. And I didn't realize that, which is actually a compliment to the writing style in and the plot in this third book is I didn't feel like this was an unnecessary tack on that this was a a a struggle to find a to find more story in this built world. It really felt like this was part of the plan all along. And that's really impressive to me. Uh, one thing I particularly liked, you know, I kind of said this already, but it's dark fantasy, right? The the darkness is darker. The gore is gorier. The gruesome, more gruesome, more gruesomer. I don't it, think it's true. Word. It feels like the stakes keep getting raised. Yeah. And that's super important for longer series like this. Yeah. She doesn't like pull punches and, you know, her publishers, her editors, whatever. Like, I, I feel like they don't make her pull punches either. They're like, you want to talk about some gross stuff? Do it. Like, get weird, get spooky with it. And I'm so, so happy that these books keep getting progressively more dark and dreary and also more political. Lots of political stuff behind the scenes, which a lot of people really like. Absolutely. You know, it feels like when you get more entrenched with humans, you start to see more and more about how they network and how their systems come together. So, I mean, again, that feels really authentic to me. It feels like we are learning about real people living in this strange little world. Yeah. And the ties, um, you see these more connections to you see alliances and you see feuds within different kind of cities, you know, like people who maybe are war gifted that are now in another part of the world and all the connections they left behind. And it kind of like the world, yeah, it grew, it got bigger. But at the same time, we're seeing how everybody's connected. And again, really deliberate, well planned out. Um, so let's talk about our appeal scores. Now, Scott, is this the same game where we guessed before? <laughs> um, I don't I don't remember what you gave uh, as as appeal scores for this book. So, no, I do have a game for the spoiler section. though. Oh, OK, cool. Well, that'll be next. I mean, honestly, like I 
I find these books to be just so, so lovingly well written and such great stories with these amazing characters that I can't wait to talk more about in the spoiler section. I mean, I'm like, I'm like broad mass. Like, I I mean, why aren't, why isn't everyone reading this book? It's so good. And I, and I think it will appeal to people who are not just fantasy people. I mean, obviously, if you're listening right now, you know that how the other books are. But like, try to get this into the hands of your non-fantasy friends, because I think they'd really enjoy this series. I completely agree. I, 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 I almost hesitate to say that it's mass appeal just because, you know, because that little bit of darkness is there. But the thing is, I think people and humans are a lot more drawn to darkness than we somehow want to admit. You know, hence every fairy tale ever. Right, exactly. Um, it's so, magic. So yeah, no, I'll do it. I'll say this is mass appeal. I'm Thank gonna, you. I'm going to keep putting it into more people's hands. Yes, we're conscripting. So one of the things that I think about now, at least for this book, particularly with fantasy, when I think of the appeal score is lord of the rings uh if if mm-hmm. you know hobbits if you would hobbits. ask me what the appeal score of lord of the rings was if i just read it off of the shelf i would say niche it that you know strong niche fantasy and yet it's a huge cultural phenomenon before it became a movie and then when when it became a movie even bigger i think that this series in general would make an excellent series of movies i think it would be huge i think this is mass appeal i i i i I don't know if that's if i gave it that score before but there's so much for so many in this. There's there's a lot of horror, there's a lot of great fantasy, and there's just a lot of really great, strong characters and story that I don't see anything objectionable to anyone. I think it's I think it's absolutely for the masses. I agree. So we're gonna take a break and we're gonna jump into the spoiler section so we can talk about how much we love this beautiful matriarchal goddess worshiping series. Enjoying the show? Please like and subscribe on iTunes. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Genre Junkies. And don't forget to visit the website, genrejunkies.com. Welcome back to the spoiler section of Two Dark Rains. I'm going to try really hard to keep myself under control because I want to just blurt out words like like I just I can't I cannot. It's like a fount that just wants to come springing out of me. I'm going to try to be really calm. We're going to see how that goes. (laughs) Someone else start. Okay, so I want to start it off by introducing a brand new score to the show. What is this? We're going to score each other. We're going to score each other. All of us made kind of an unintentional uh, forecast for this book. And I want us I want us to score the other person and feel just how on the ball they got. I I don't I don't I don't have like a number system in mind, just like anything from yeah, that was kind of right to oh my god, you nailed it and you you hole in one, you you got it. All right? Okay. So because this is my game and <laughs> Uh, I win. <laughs> that's right. I win. Welcome to Christmas every year, people. <laughs> so we're going to start with my prediction. Okay. So my prediction went a little something like this. When I say that it, it, that it was a subtle realization of just how important that it is that this is a matriarchal society, that's what I mean is it really only is until the, it isn't until the end of the second book when they really start to show the other side, mm-hmm. the more typical male characters. And I think we're going to yeah. see a lot more of that in the third book. And now two of our... Um... Uh, should I, would you like me to score like <laughs> whether I think that came to fruition? Yeah. I mean, it's not okay. a personal thing, obviously. It's just a prediction. Yeah. I'm going to say... How awesome, how awesome was, was my Nostradamusing? Oh, okay. Oh, you're Nostradamusing. I, not not a verb, but no, it's, it's my okay. favorite verb. Yes, um, I think it was pretty good. I think it was pretty good too. I um, I, I think I was getting a little tripped up on the the thought of showing more of the evils of men, like as in men versus women, because I kind of felt like, and this might be me more talking to my own experience, the times that they were on the mainland, uh, Arsnow and Mirabella. It was really the the cruelties of girls toward other girls <laughs> that came forward to me more. Um, you don't get that on uh, on uh, Fenburn, which they talk about several times in there, both 
in the Daphne flashbacks and for Arsenault herself, it's, you know, I can't be myself here. I have to try to look the way other people want me to look. It doesn't make any sense to me. And uh, the people who are reinforcing that, at least in this book, are other women who are on the mainland. Billy's you know, family. Billy's family. Um, and, and not necessarily in, of course, an evil or intentioned way, just like, that's not how we do things here. Well, and you of know. course, the argument could be that men make them behave that way. Oh, and absolutely. Yes. And I don't mean to say that. I just I just mean like, you know, who's the who's the person who's actually going to say something at the party? You know, yeah. who's the person who's going to be embarrassed by Arsenault's behavior on the mainland? Billy's not embarrassed. Certainly, it's partly because of his time on Fenburn and his different experience of that. But, you know, he also doesn't have a stake in in defending her. He knows she can defend him herself. Right. He, yeah, but he's drinking the Fenburn Kool-Aid. Like, one should. No, I think that was a pretty good prediction, Scott. Like, I'm not saying it was a home run, but I think it was good. I think it was really good, too. I, I didn't mean to shoot it down in any way. <laughs> no, that's fine. Th- thank you. I- I'm pretty proud of it myself. <laughs> I think there's a lot of discussion to be made on what a patriarchal society looks like, as in, you know, our society now. And to talk about, you know, some of the things that are that are negatives that are created even inside of women in a patriarchal society. I, I think yeah. I think that is explored more in the third book. I, I, I found it a lot. And very fascinating because the mainland is a lot like us in the Western world right now. They're kind of Victorianists. So speaking of that, I want to go into the second prediction that I have that Amanda made that blew us all just away. I have a little wonder in my head if the mainland isn't actually a modern Western land because there's actually, I think this, I'm, it might have just been a mistake on the part of the author or whatever. It might have just been a little fluke. But when Billy sees Kara, is that her name? Aunt Kara, yeah. who's the one who's the, been banished to the Black Cottage. Yeah. When he sees her, he says, it's like looking at a photo of Grandma Kate 20 years ago. Oh. He says it's like looking at a photo. And they don't mention photos anywhere else. But maybe, yeah, if it's this not. This is not a world that has photography. Yeah, if <laughs> they, they deal with tapestries. They don't even have paintings. <laughs> I mean, yeah, so they have like uh, what I assume to be kind of Victorian like era, like technology on the mainland and their dress and like you go to university and they have, you know, like um, uh, graveyards and like, that doesn't sound very Victorian, but graveyards are actually really Victorian. (laughs) Um, I mean, they have like, like Fenburn doesn't have that. Like there's no graveyards in Fenburn. They light people on pyres. Like it's very much like, and this is man's world and this is man's work and men go out and learn business and then they might take a wife and set up household. Yeah. So that was a really good prediction, Amanda. Kendara found the perfect point in history where the mainlanders can really still be a little, you know, old fashioned. They still travel in, you know, sailboats and all of that, but still have the beginnings of things like photography for the upper class. They still have some technological advancements. I I think that that was a really good catch because until you said that, I always pictured the mainland as being much more medieval than what it ended up being and, and just absolutely nailed it. It's almost like Fenburn has kind of chosen to stay old school in a good way. Go on. What do you, well, go on. Well, yeah, no, your I, was, I, I, I felt pretty darn good about it, honestly, when it, when it happened. <laughs> Shock of shocks. But I, I felt really vindicated in my, my thinking. Not that, I mean, I was kind of like hoping like it's actually the future out there. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> that wouldn't have fit in any way. That would have been the wrong choice. I was just, I don't know, my little sci-fi heart flew with the idea. But no, I actually, when I was, you know, listening to kind of the way she talked about or the way she wrote about um, the parties and things like that, it felt so rooted in the 1800s for me, like the English and even American 1800. I'm not going to say nostalgic because I'm not sure anybody's hearkening back for those times. But <laughs> not, not uh, women and people of color anyway. Right, right. But the historical dramas have, you know, created this lush atmosphere for that. Um, and then when you think about back to the time of the Blue Queen, it says specifically that it was 400 years previous. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. So that puts us into sort of the 1400s. I'm not sure where doublets and hose really came into fashion. <laughs> I think it might have actually been a little later than that. What did but you just still- call me? <clears throat> What'd you just call me? You know what I called you. <laughs> <laughs> it's a doublet hoe. Twice the hoe. 
half the price. No, but the uh, the just the, the the fact that she was going back that far in dress made sense to me. And then furthermore, it seemed to be so specifically the point where the two timelines skewed. And you have the rest of the world and the outside, you know, different influences and forces for better or for worse, continuing to develop uh, technology. And clearly fashion has moved on in a different way. Whereas opposed to when you go back to when there was peace with the mainland and there wasn't that separation, they were on the same level. And then now in Fenburn, it's like nothing has really changed from that point on. Um, you know, the clothes that uh, Daphne wears when she gets to Fenburn, Arsenault notices very well, like, oh, well, yeah, that's basically the clothes I would wear. Um, and, and nothing has changed. It's like the island has kept itself so secluded and sort of toxic in its... its uh, like incestuous? Yes, incestuous yeah. and its insistence on tradition and doing things exactly the way they've always been done before. This, you know, very religious sensibility about continuing on um, in on our present course and never deviating from it. it. You know, and you start to see like how twisted and dark that can really make things. So that I, I appreciated that. So you have a little bit of juxtaposition there. Without her going too crazy into the details about how they're different, you just get a very different sense of atmosphere. Never mind societal rules and things like that. Well said. So our third prediction wasn't even a prediction at the time, but ended up still being exactly correct. And I think this one will lead us into our plot discussion. Is it me? Sometimes when when people are possessed, <laughs> um, she's possessed by this really, she's really the one I think of as legion cursed, because she's filled with all of these dead queens who are like, I should have been the damn queen. Like, they're not happy. And so, like, when her fresh meat fell in, they were like, oh, my God, you guys. Oh, my God, girls, this is our chance. Everybody jump in to this clown car of a human. <laughs> <laughs> Stop, stop. You embarrass me. Am I the winner? Did I win? I'm the so, winner. <laughs> okay. So what's incredible about this is that you said to me, she's the one who's legion cursed. And you are absolutely correct. The whole prophecy that the uh, a legion cursed queen would either be the salvation or the destruction of the island you were you were right without even without any of us even realizing it at the time absolutely without it ever having been framed that way yeah they um you know i just know more than the people of fenburn that's all can't help it no can't help that that was a fun game i like that game because i won (laughs) no i think we're all winners here okay that was actually some pretty good stuff folks listening at home every christmas ever So I wanted to talk about the prophecy really quickly while we're in the spoiler section. Uh, Do you guys think that it's not the prophecy is not necessarily that the Legion cursed queen will either be it's that one Legion cursed will be the downfall and one Legion cursed will be the salvation. How how do you how do you think that this plays out? Um, I'll go first. I I will say that I feel like. This needed to fall into place. This needed to happen. These girls, uh, the queens and jewels, it all needed to happen exactly like this because the island needed a hard reboot. It needed a, a hard reset to get it into its next um, iteration, its final form, if you will. So that's kind of my theory is that all of the events in the past were leading up to this, you know, things have gotten corrupt, things have gotten polluted, things have gotten kind of stagnant. And in order for the people to kind of move forward, this all had to happen. I agree. I I think my um my thing with the prophecy is and this is in no way a bad thing in fact I I delight in this I feel like I don't have enough information yet I feel like I'm not supposed to have the information yet I feel like there's a big piece of this puzzle that I haven't figured out um and that part really is that uh I forget exactly the the sentence but it's it's that Jules was once a queen and maybe again. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's like, yes. So I'm, I don't, I'm like, is that, is she literally a reincarnation? It's, I don't know if reincarnation happens here because it seems like the, the spirits of these queens don't really dissipate. They don't really go anywhere else. They sort of seem to still be part of the island. So... You know, so I just I'm I'm not clear on that yet. And so I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing how that part unfolds. I think there's at least one reincarnation. Yeah, and I think it's her. 
I think the reason why she is Legion cursed is the same reason why uh, Katarin is Legion cursed. I think that one of those gifts, most likely the war gift, is a former queen, is the spirit of yeah. a former queen inside of her. And obviously, since she was bound, there was that that never came out. I think the reason why Legion cursed exists, I don't think that it actually exists as a as just a birth thing and you have two gifts. I think every Legion cursed in the history was actually possessed. Right. Like some sort of possession reincarnation situation. I like that. I'm with you. I'm picking I, up what you're laying down. I like that. Do you, do you think that there's any possibility that she was uh, Philomene or Philomena, who's the queen that gives birth to the queens at the beginning, the queen who gives birth to Ilion and uh, her sisters? Ooh. That actually would, would make a lot of sense because that queen might not be really happy with how things turned out with her with her blue queen child right, not actually her, becoming the queen. Yeah, her whole thing was this is the legacy I'll give to the island. Like she was so delighted in what she was gonna do, like how the mark is that she would leave on history uh, when that fourth queen popped out of her. Um, that it's like okay, well, you guys then totally messed up everything that I you know I warred and fought for for her like eight year reign. Um, I I just it just it's just an idea, just an idea. No bad ideas in brainstorming. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about Jules and her role in this book. Um, I was very happy with it, as I said in the first section. I love her adventures with other people. I mean, I love her, of course, you know, when she's reunited with all the characters we know. But I really loved Amelia and Matilde. Matilda? Matilda? In, in my head, I read it as a Matilda, because anytime I have that E on the end of words, I, I go with the uh sound. But, okay. Um, um, I loved that because, like, oh my gosh, people with war gift, and there's like a whole bunch of them, and oracles, they're not just lunatics. Like, they kind of, everyone led us to believe up until this point. Like, I mean, they're just kind of paranoid, but I mean, not really. Like, they live their lives, and they have jobs, and they're bards, and they travel, and she was a really cool addition, and... Can we please, can we please have Jules and Amelia war wives? I need them to be war wives. I'm loving war wives. I, I, I would love that. I, I feel like the groundwork has been laid. I, I don't think that it was foreshadowing. I think it was beating it over, over the reader's well, head that this is what is going well, to happen. And that, I'm down. No, yeah. It's clear that Amelia has feelings for Jules, but now Jules just has to open up her heart because her boo's dead. Boo <laughs> is totally dead, which I wasn't sure Joseph was going to be dead, but he He's way dead in the mainland in a grave, which is like a horrible perversion to them. And she needs to just get with Amelia and they're going to be real happy. I love it. And Cam, they're going to be a happy little family. Me too. I mean, I, I can't wait. I hope that that happens. Although I, it would have been weird if it had happened in this book just because he was, you know, Joseph Sandrin was the love of her life and he like literally, literally just yeah. died in yeah. her arms. <laughs> like it's been, I don't know, weeks or maybe a couple months at this point, but it's still a little... A little soon, you know, unless you're just seeking comfort. But it feels like we're building a a better bond than that. I appreciate that the that the groundwork for the um, that particular relationship is not actually Arsenault. Um, You know, Arsenault is set up in this book is particularly as being a very I mean, she's set up throughout all of the books as being very strong tomboy. But it's it's made even stronger in this third book of it really being her truth. Like, this is just who she is. How she dresses is a part of how she identifies. And I appreciate that she's still, she she's not just made to be a complete, you know. Stereotypical. I love, I think what you're saying is that her femininity is not necessarily tied to her sexuality in any way. That they, they can be different. You know, you can be a tomboy and, you know, still enjoy gentleman's company or, you know, vice versa. You can be yeah. a lady who loves ladies who also loves lipstick or whatever. You know, it's it, it's it doesn't play into the things that that, you know, make you kind of feel cringy. Right. Um, it's not the stereotypical choice. Exactly. Like, oh, it's her old childhood friend who was always, you know, one of the guys. Yeah, no, I agree. Like, it's nice that it got away from that trope yeah they're just real people with lots of colors i love that That, that's exactly what i was trying to say yes thank you um 
I really like the relationship that Jules and um, Amelia build throughout the book. A- Amelia is a is a really complicated character. You can tell that she is very much a zealot, which is a bad thing, but also really comes to care for Jules a- at least on a friendly level, at least on a, on a on a personal level by the end. But she still is so much of a zealot that she doesn't let that put into question any of her beliefs. I don't know that I'd call her a zealot, but I mean, she is passionate. She's, you know, kind of spearheading this rebellion because she has a lot at stake. Um, She's lost a lot. She's, you know, um, her people have kind of gone through a lot. Yeah, I mean, I think she's amazing. I don't know if I'd call her a zealot, but she's certainly very impassioned and a little vengeance-driven. Well, I think I think part of what you're both saying is because these gifts are so tied into um, how people move through the world. The war gifted, I mean, like they they're are aggressive. They're aggressive and they're intense people. They're they don't do things halfway. You know, you think of just sort of that archetypal warrior in your mind. I mean, it takes a lot to, you know, this is Sparta. Like, <laughs> like you Ro, have, Ro you in have the to temple. believe it. Yeah, exactly. Ro doesn't back down for anything. Um, and when she, you know, decided to devote her life to the temple, well, she will easily kill and smash a little woodpecker if she needs to in order to support the tenets of that religion. Um, so I think that, yeah, she's, they all kind of embody in uh, little bits of their gift and it sort of colors the way that they interact with other people and what they choose to be passionate about. And look at that woodpecker he's doing good pepper we thought we lost you pep we thought we lost you a little bit back there it was hard times how fun was that to see ro and you know um brie and everybody and like started from the bottom now we're here i love that and can i just also we maybe we're already gonna bring this up but i love that we still see pieces of katarin the way that um she is the yeah, way she that naturally is a whole is. subject sorry uh, didn't no, see that's that good. That's a good let's, segue into let's it. Let's lead right into it. Um, so Catherine has a huge part in in my heart because she's poisoner, and I just feel like she's been through like so much, like more even than the other girls who I also love. And I I love that she's still in there and she's really battling, but she's written with a ton of compassion and like heart and you know it's not like she's totally mean and like villainized and like oh now she's the one we all hate like she is really multifaceted such a great treatment of that character i agree you know because the way she grew up and who she is kind of innately is this person who is very compassionate and is very gentle and very sweet and when you grow up in a, a harsh environment, i.e. the house of the Aarons, uh, and you are told all of your life that that sweetness is really weakness, then, you know, the first time you get a taste of real power, of real strength, of being able to pull yourself up, then, you know, you can see why she would have been dazzled by by having that new strength. Right. And it's um when we remember back to how the Poisoners, since they're kind of the, you know, kind of the leaders of Fenburn and they've kind of made themselves that way, carved out this niche, they carry out the executions. And, you know, there's like that part where I'm really paraphrasing. But when Katarin learns about that and they're like, well, we're not monsters. Like, you know, they hear people out, they hear their story, they have like food and drink with them and they give them a very dignified execution. So it's like poisoners actually, you know, they got some layers too. I appreciate that she is made to be a good guy. She would be a good queen if she didn't have, you know, 40 or 50 other queens inside of her and was given the chance by the mist. If she was just left to be the queen and all of this happened and now it's just Catherine on the throne, she would she actually was doing very well. Her council was really starting to like her. The people even would have come to like her because of the things that she wanted to bring about. In the first two books, by the end, she's really made to be a very weak character. She's she's very passive when it comes to herself, and she is incredibly evil and just gross when she is being controlled by the spirits. And so by the end of the second book, to me, she really just felt like a bad guy. I, I remember saying in our previous episode that I felt like our Katarin did die. In this third book, I feel like we got a bit of her back and like, oh, oh, you actually could have been really good. I actually kind of like you on the throne, but it's just not going to work now because you're kind of a walking undead creature. And you, you know, kind of killed like a little boy and like you're really scaring people. 
Yeah, that scene I actually felt could have been described a little bit stronger. Oh, I thought it was good. I, I, I did. I was a little confused because it, though, I think she said it was a boy that rushed at her when the event was happening. It sounded much more like it had gone from being maybe like an angry 16 year old with real intention to a little boy with a stick. And then it was <laughs> so so a toddler. It, so my, my question was just like, so was it that when he came at her, she saw him as like a visceral, realistic enemy? Or was it that the queens took over and they just don't care? They just like to spill the blood i just i felt like that's where we got to like in in the revelation of everything that had happened but in the writing of it at that moment i just didn't i didn't quite see it that way but you know might have been my my interpretation and the the way it's described when it happens is you know she very quickly dispatches this child and later on through the book the story gets more and more and more gruesome and she never questions it which makes me feel like that's actually how it happened and and the scene itself happens so quickly that it didn't actually get the emotional reaction from me at the moment that i think that maybe kendara meant to i only got that emotional connection to that choice chapters later well i guess i'm just levels above y'all i was fine i'm just kidding <laughs> you felt that there there was enough blood and gore in that scene I well, there I'm, can I'm... always be more but i guess it wasn't incredibly bloody or gory because she thought she was doing the right thing in the moment with all of her ladies making that choice with her i mean it is good foreshadowing to everything that happens later and yeah. you know the other big uh stabby murder <laughs> that she Ooh, uh, so ends good. up committing later it's like you go from it being i hey i thought i was acting in self-defense to later on um when spoiler alert she stabs <laughs> madrigal through the neck and like Pulls it all out of her, her throat, all of the guts and gore. I know guts aren't in your throat. Give give me <laughs> some leeway. <laughs> that was a brilliantly executed it was, scene. It, epic. it was, and it, it was like you didn't. I at least I did not see it coming. Um, and then when it happened, it was like you were sort of watching it through Catherine's eyes or Catherine. I'm sorry if I'm saying your name wrong. You're watching it through Cat's eyes. Cats. I like Cat. You see, at that point, she is Cat. Like her voice is so separate from the Queen's at that point that you can almost hear them being voiced by other actors in your head. You know. Oh, I, that's totally how I saw it too. Um. Was anybody else having major anxiety when Mirabella and Arsenault were on the mainland? I mean, I loved all that stuff with the spectral blue spooky queen, all that. I love that. But it's like, oh, my God, you need to get back on the island. We need to be done with this. I mean, in like a really good way, not like in a, you know, the author's wasting our time way. But like, we cannot be here. We need to be on Fenburn. Guys, she's pointing. Literally, go back. It's not a trick. This is not a drill. I agree. The, the tension was getting high at that point. I, I really dug it. Um, yeah, but yeah, I was like, okay, okay, but okay, but come on, Mirabella. <laughs> you, you gotta go back, What's Mirabella. with all of a sudden Mirabella's like, I'm gonna be the logical one and not listen to spiritualism. And I think that's actually, I may, I'm mocking it, but I think it was a great growth kind of thing for her character, to be honest. I actually think that the first two books did pay off into this version of Mirabella because really she's the one who gave up the throne. Arsenault never expected to be the queen. She always expected to die. Whereas Mirabella always expected to be, and she decided, you know what? I'm not going to do this. I don't want any part of this anymore, and left. She, I mean, Arsenault really kind of was never, never felt like part of the island, never felt like part of the legacy, but Mirabella deliberately chose to leave it behind. And so I felt that her reluctance to bring herself back into that really rang true to her decisions from the first two books. I completely and totally agree. And I think also in her sort of um, her emotional, you know, maybe unexpected reaction to what she finds there, their names aren't spoken anymore. She knows that logically once queens have been, you know, once they are the queens that are not the queen crowned, uh, history forgets about them, very specifically sets them aside. Um, So she already knows that logically, but to come back and to find not just is it the queen that took the, the crown that everyone's talking about, but there's this little, you know, person who had no relation to this epic old school line from the goddess, um, nothing at all. And she has risen to such prominence that, you know, her name is whispered and her title is whispered everywhere. And she's like, 
but it, it, it's and I don't think it's entirely an ego thing. It's more like a sense of self that it doesn't make sense to her anymore. You know, she she did everything she could to be a good person. She just wanted to not kill her little sisters, which we now know, of course, she could have done in two seconds flat. Picked them both up with the wind, slammed them on their heads and said, give me that crown. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, instead she fought tooth and nail. In fact, she is uh, the impetus for so much of the plot was her reluctance to take that crown. And she goes away from it and goes to the mainland and does her best like with with really good I think you know practice really trying to fit in over there even though she doesn't fit in but she's been raised to be diplomatic so she does better than other people might have certainly better than Arsenault does with her wild ways um and so you know when she finally gets drawn back in again by love for her sister um and finds everything isn't the way that it was in her imagination that's hard it's hard to go back into your past and see that things aren't as good as you thought they were um so that was really relatable for me um i liked it um i i really liked uh, mirabella's journey um arsenault's journey everybody's journey like i said i was kind of joking but it's true like everybody gets evolved everybody levels up because um like there's like a really cool part where again horrible paraphrasing but when um mirabella thinks billy's gonna ditch them and she's like you know maybe i don't know my way around here but i will take care of myself and my sister sir and i was like oh yeah you go girl like who doesn't matter where we are we don't need this stupid man do we and um like she becomes more logical and more practical on the mainland and arsenault is the one that gets taken on like a spiritual journey and that was pretty cool because you know up until that point we haven't seen that uh one more thing about mirabella that i really liked and this this is actually for three characters i really like the relationship that mirabella has continued with billy I mean, they were, they were, they had a, they had a good friendship. They had a good relationship in the first two books. And I like that that's continuing into, into this third book of their just kind of friendship and trust for each other. And they're kind of siblings. They're kind of, yeah, they really do have kind of a sibling in cahoots sort of relationship that I, I really appreciate. But I'm really sad because I don't think Billy and Arsenault are going to make it. <gasps> I feel like she was planting those little seeds in this book that they're just not going to be together. And I don't know if that's because he's supposed to be with Mirabella or if they're just not made for each other after all. I, I don't know what, what it's going to mean, but I don't think they're going to make it through the fourth book. Oh my God, how dare you? They're an OTP for me. No! No. Amanda's over there nodding. Amanda's no, over no. there nodding. OTP. OTP. I, I think Scott's got the right of this one. I really do. Because <sighs> it, it feels so much to me like um, in another context, it'd be first love that was true and wonderful when it was happening. But then you kind of grow apart. And I think they both know a little bit more about what the other one wants now than they ever could have before. But also the game is completely changed. He came into this to go be the king concert at King <laughs> the King concert. <laughs> The uh, the king consort of this little island, and she was, you know, theoretically going to be ruling it, and um, their lives were going to play out down a very specific, very uh, specified path. And now none of that's true anymore. And yeah, they have a real bond because they really grew to like each other. Um, but yeah, it just feels like, you know, he always felt like at some point I'm going to wake up from the stream and go back to my real life. And when that happened, he's like, okay, well, you said you're game for it. We did everything we could to get you into this thing um now let, let's do what we said we we're gonna do and she's like uh, yeah <laughs> about that um i just really want to get out of a bad situation <laughs> and uh this isn't really working for me i mean i'm never gonna put a dress on again so that's probably an issue in you know 1840s whatever it is um you know that so it's like we, we now we're starting to see a little bit more personal you know really like I thought we were on the same level and they're not. Um, I don't know that he's going to end up with Mirabella, but I think that Mirabella would be a better match for him if they were to eventually end up on the mainland, just because I think she could pretty much deal with it in a different way. But I, I you know, I don't know. My prediction, Billy going to die. <laughs> I I thought he was going to die in this book. When they have that scene up on the mountain with Braddock, that's a little suggestive in, in, in a nice way. I thought that that was going to be his last scene. I thought he was going to die in the cave or upon coming down. It's like, this is how you set up a death, which... <laughs> 
is a really good way of how they set up the big surprise death of the book. Okay, wait, hold on. Before we get to the big surprise death in the book, I'm sorry. I'm hearing you guys. I'm hearing you guys. <laughs> but I want to wash both of your mouths out with soap. Disgusting. Absolutely not. You leave this OTP alone. Arsenal, Billy, forever. I'm, I'm going to pretend right now that I understand what you're meaning, and I'm just asking for the listeners. But could you explain what OTP means? <laughs> Oh, Amanda, you sweet summer child. An OTP is a one true pairing. Oh, okay. Well, I, I like that. It's not right, but I like it. That's <laughs> good. That's a good reference. Oh, you're welcome. So, I okay, yeah. I mean, I appreciate your emotions on this, but I think Amanda and I are going to win this one Plugging my for ears. the next la, episode. La, la. I think the next episode when we do our little game, oh, and I actually said it first, so really I win. <gasps> <laughs> But yeah, I thought that was going to be the last scene of Billy because that is basically how they set up. That's how they set up Peter. You know, they 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 came together. They're going to they have a plan. They're happy together. He's going to help her become really just Catherine again. And then, nope. Yeah, we we many queens aren't going to let that happen. You're you're done. You're dead. toast. See, here's the thing. I I still haven't quite forgiven Peter for pushing Catherine into the Breccia domain <laughs> all that time ago. But I did like, um, through these last books, the way their relationship has evolved. Um, I do feel that he really, truly cares about her. And he really could walk away because he knows her deep, dark, crazy ass secret of being so possessed. Okay. Amanda has this look on her face, and I'm worried because Sandra and I read the manuscript, and Amanda read the book. Is this scene still in the book? <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. okay. So, <laughs> at least, was, as far as really I'm, you, you meaning you mean in the the circle of stones and blood soaked rope, and we're like, it's all working out, honey. Yep. Okay. Yep. okay. Oh my yes. god, it was everything's so gonna good. be fine. But what I, a, I, what a great scene. What? No, that was it. Was really a great scene, and it was. I thought it was a nice payoff to sort of magical, um, in a couple of ways. Like a, like she was true to her word. She did tell him what to do, but then at the same time, I don't know. It seems like maybe she left out a couple details. Like it was her big fu. Yeah, like the whole like, oh, just get some rocks and I, yeah, I don't know, soak a bloody rope. That'll probably be fine. <laughs> it's like I don't know if you're the greatest practitioner of low magic, you probably understand that substitutes are not encouraged. It's kind of like Ina Garten. Then store bought's fine. <laughs> exactly. Um, but no, I, I, but I would say that that was also also kind of uh, the lead up to the death of Joseph Sandrin. We're getting off the island. Everything's gonna be fine. <laughs> Boom. Boom. Yeah. And yeah, you're not going to make it. Everything's not fine. It's not fine. So so this means that Catherine's, both of Catherine's loves are dead. Um, Mirabella never really had a love. No, well, she, 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 she was she, fallen for Joseph. She'd fallen for Joseph, but it was sort of, I don't know, I'd put it more into the realm of mutual infatuation. Yeah. It wasn't love, but it was also potentially brought about by magic. The, yeah, the low magic that, that went wrong when Arsenault couldn't quite finish that first spell she did with Madrigal. So it's sort of like it was it was never really going to be anything other than destructive to everybody let's around it, it. Let's call it a wash. Let's call it a wash. Let's well, wash anyway, it he did. And uh, <laughs> finally, I, I you have Billy. I, I don't think that he can make it through. So it's just all the men must die. I, I think all the men must die. It's entirely possible. However, I would say just in case she's going to swing this thing around and say, uh, we are going to adhere to some rules. They're just not going to be what you expected. I mean, he is the only mainlander male left. So if there will ever be triplets again, theoretically, <laughs> they do need him around for a while. So I'll just put that out there as a potential check on my um, uh, anticipation of his imminent demise. I mean, they certainly need him for a final scene. For a final event. <laughs> well, see, here's kind of where I was hoping. Let's say he doesn't die, or maybe he does die. I kind of think my prediction for the last book, I don't really know what's going to happen with everything. But I felt like Kat is going to either die, um, which is fine. Like, I mean, I don't want her to die. I love her. But I think she might be at peace if she dies. Or maybe she'll be stripped and devoid of everything. And she gets to go live on like the mainland and have like a nice, happy life. She, well, she also, A, was was never really intended to rule. There was always a chance because of the power of the Aarons and specifically Natalia Aaron being behind her and in her court and, you know, playing all the right games and all of that. But it's it's not like Kat ever won. 
wanted to rule. That wasn't something she really wanted. She really didn't think she was going to survive. Um, so for her, she's probably the person who, you know, if you get rid of all those icky old coins in there, that she she probably would do the best on the mainland because uh, just having a quiet life completely away from Fenborn, which has done nothing but hurt her, uh, wouldn't be a bad outcome for her. Or maybe she could like go live at the Black Cottage. I don't know. I just, I mean, she's kind of my... She's kind of my precious little baby, and I just want her to be happy, however that needs to happen for her. But you know what? I can't I can't make predictions about the last book. I cannot, you guys. My I am like, I am so beyond obsessed and like so attached to these people. My heart just can't do this anymore. I just I, can't do it. I agree. I just yeah. <laughs> I, I I I I'm sure uh I have no idea what's gonna happen, <laughs> which is also a wonderful spot to be in with a book that you love and that you're still actively engaged in. You know, how often is somebody not spoon feeding you things? I I love that. I love that you have to work a little bit to kind of see where she's going and she's still gonna surprise you. Amen. I think it's time to wrap it up with a, an execution score, which is hard for a middle book for a third book. But uh we're going to do it anyway, right? You look pained, Sandra. I am pained, you guys. I feel sick. My, my hair is standing up on my arms. I get really emotional talking about this series. She really does. I'm so, I mean, don't we all, though? Like, it's so good. And like, I had said this in our interview. I'm just like, this can't be done. Like, I can't. No, you can't ever stop writing these books. Like, please just sit by my bedside, Gandar Blake, <laughs> and tell me stories of these people I love in this land that I love. <laughs> How, what do we want to give it out of what? Um, I'd say, let's let's say out of five sweethearts. <gasps> the snake! Sweetheart twos. Oh, yeah, New sweetheart. sweetheart new, new sweetheart, that's right. <laughs> How many five. new sweethearts? <laughs> How many new sweetheart the snake out of five? I mean, like, I'm, so, I'm not holding back anymore, you guys. Like, I'm being really honest. I'm wearing my heart on my sleeve. All the sweethearts. Five sweethearts. Five beautiful little snakes that I want to give kisses on the head to. And just live in the Valroy and be a happy poisoner. I am giving this four sweethearts out of five. Oh, how dare oh. you! And and this is not. This might not be fair to the book, but it is a middle book. I was really expecting a more of a of, of an abyss moment in towards the end of this book. A little bit, a little bit of a Empire Strikes Back. There's some hope, but some really bad stuff went down. Um, and and I think that it would have been more powerful for me if I was like, oh, oh, things are really, 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 really bad right now. And I feel like there's a bit of um, you know what? I take all of that back. Scratch it. I take all of that back. I- I'm probably going to cut it all. I take all of that back because strike that Mirabella has just abandoned Billy and Arsenault. She is going to Cat's side. And that's really, that's actually really sad. I can like hear the gears turning and I can hear your heart breaking and I'm watching you work through this and it's really raw and intimate. I'm giving this five sweethearts out of five. (laughs) I'm heartbroken now. I'm, I'm going through stages of grief, apparently. Oh my god, my stomach hurts. I can't even. I really feel like that was an episode of bargaining in all of this. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to have your work cut out for you in editing this episode. (laughs) Do you want to just go again? No. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, because, and then. (laughs) That's how we all feel. Okay, just in case I edit all of that out. Um. I just said a whole big thing about uh, uh, about how I was scoring this because of this, that, and the other. I, I can't even go into it anymore. It's five out of five. That, that there, there it is. I too would give it five out of five new sweethearts. Um, I I love that at the end of the book you you end up just as you did in the first two books in a place you never expected to get to. Um, so you know this is a third book in a. Uh, quartet so you know there is exposition that's happening before we can finally get to our you know final battle with the big boss <laughs> which i'm gonna call the island but we'll see um i i love that she finds new ways to keep the story fresh and for that alone i'd give it a high score but also she just enriched every other part of this that i loved so much in this book five sweethearts i give it a big hiss <laughs> Oh my gosh, you guys, this, Scott, you could do a whole episode just on a bloopers of this. 
All right, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. Amanda, thank you. Thanks for coming back to talk about this book. We're going to have you back in a not too distant future. You know, maybe not in October because that's horror month and you kind of steer clear of that. But thank you for coming out. Thank you so much for having me. I'll come out anytime. I love you guys. I love talking to you guys. I love listening to you guys when I'm not on the podcast. It's a delight. Thank you. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. And as always, please keep reading past your bedtime. tobacco right when we're gonna record the podcast show podcast show i there's people i know at my work who fucking chew and i'm like oh are my you god kid- are you kidding me Why 2018 you that? like in 2018 you're I mean, chewing you're literally you're just chewing on a wad of cancer like why would you do that and they were keeping their spit bottles around and i shut that down i was like you have got to be joking me i'm like this is fucking foul and i'm probably getting cancer from looking at it no, I do. I need it. I got a. I got a. I got an imaginary cancer. <laughs> As you were. <laughs> She's like, yeah, let's start. Oh, I don't want to go to waste. I can't just like chug it when we're done. Do like, you want me to have some? <laughs> just drink it. If you want some, you may absolutely have some for it is your vodka. No, no. I just didn't know if you were like, I don't want to waste it, but I don't want it. No, I just, my timing wasn't <laughs> Oh, no, good. I want it. It takes me a long time to chew things. Yeah, no. My teeth are very sticky. They're the little mint candies. <laughs>